The Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, the winner of this year's Bain Fantasy Adventure Award, genetically engineered dragons go to war, and we continue our ongoing audiobook serialization of Timothy Zahn's Cobra, all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour. It's a pleasure to have you along. I am Bain Associate Editor and your podcast host, David Afsharirad. This week, Josh Hayes sat down with Dan Cobalt to discuss Deploying Dragons, the second book in the Build a Dragon sequence, which sees genetic engineer Noah Parker facing off against his old mentor to create military-grade dragons. But first, the news. Head on over to Bane.com and read this year's Bane Fantasy Adventure award-winning story on Cultivating a Chosen One by Christopher Baxter. A dark lord known as the Night King is waging a war against which no army can stand. Professor Bellick, a student of history and prophecy, knows the only thing that can stand against such a creature is a hero. A chosen one cannot be manufactured, but Bellick knows there are ways to improve one's odds of finding just such a hero. That's on Cultivating a Chosen One, the winner of the 2022 Bain Fantasy Adventure Award, free to read right now on Bain.com. The dead travel quickly for great ebook deals. Other publishers might want to suck the life out of you, charging too much for ebooks, but not Bain. We're driving a stake through the heart of high ebook prices. Invite us into your e-reader with great deals on Bain ebooks featuring vampires. But act quickly, these deals will evaporate just like Nosferatu when the sun comes up on October 1st. And be sure to check out David Carrico's new novel, The Blood is the Life. For this ebook sale, get $1 off The Half-Life Chronicles by William Mark Simmons, The Lord Richard Vampire Novels by Nigel Bennett and P.N. Elrod, and the short story anthology, Fangs for the Mammaries, edited by Esther Friesner. These discounts apply wherever Bain ebooks are sold. And that's it for the news. Hello and welcome to the interview section of the Bain Free Radio Hour. I am Josh Hayes talking with Dan Cobalt about deploying dragons uh apparently this is his first time on the podcast and i'm really excited to, to talk to him about this uh new book that's coming out but also the series as a whole um it's really interesting uh topic and a lot of the uh a lot of the events that happen in the book are very unique in that i've never read some of the way that they're presented in this book so it's really interesting and, and exciting to be able to talk to you dan about it and uh welcome to the podcast yes thank you i'm excited to be here uh so we talked a little bit just before i hit record but uh, i really like to to dive into this build a dragon idea but before we start talking about the the second book at proper um and, and one of the in the author's notes in the book you said you spent about 10 years working on the idea so where did it come from and and how has it kind of grown in the telling Oh man, has it been ten years? Uh, maybe it has. Well, that's what uh, it said. Right? No, I. I mean, I wrote <laughs> my former self. Whoever wrote that, it's, it's totally fair. Yeah. Now, so, I um, have been writing for a while, over a decade, and I write both fantasy and science fiction. But this idea probably is closest to my real world job in many respects because I, I'm a genetics researcher at a major children's hospital. And so I wanted to take, you know, something I know something about and think about on a daily basis, which is genetics and combine it with something I just happen to love as a fantasy fan, which is dragons. And I was right. a way to mash them together any way that I could. So um, the premise, the premise is essentially that uh, this main character sometime in the near future is a genetic engineer and he goes to work for a company that designs customized living, breathing dragons for retail use. 
for retail sale. And that was sort of the genesis of this book and series. And at first I wrote it as a novella and then I made it longer. And then I, you know, was developing the world and the situation that would, that would cause something like this to arise uh, along with it. So that's why it took so long. Uh, the second book didn't take nearly as long, I'm happy to say. <laughs> well, and so I didn't get to read the first one, unfortunately, but they're um, going into it uh, and, and knowing there was a first book. I Obviously, there were some things that I missed out of context, but I didn't feel out of place while reading the book. I felt really grounded, like I understood what the characters were doing, even when he's talking about kind of his prior conflicts in the, in the first book, uh, very easy to understand. Um, and that, well, what is it about dogs that you don't like? I, I just have a, you know, it, it, the, you have to wipe out dogs. Uh, and uh, I, I had a, I oh, shed man, a little tear funny. about I mean, that. I'm, I'm continuing to take flack for that. Um, <laughs> no, honestly. So first of all, I'm glad you, jumped in reading book two, which, and didn't seem to be completely lost, which is a relief. And that's the way we intended this book to work so that you could come in and read Deploying Dragons if you were new to me or new to the series and you wouldn't be lost. I mean, I try to work in the necessary information you have because this is a little bit of a different book. The first book is about this guy going to work for a company and they at that time have a wild predator type dragon that they want to domesticate so that they can sell it as like a pet, right? It's a domesticated animal. And that's yeah. sort of the main initial challenge of the book is figuring out a way to do this. The reason that they have it in the first place is they develop these reptilian predators to address a real world problem, which is uh, the spread of feral hog populations, which is a major ecological issue in oh, true. the United States, especially yeah. in the South southwest and areas where i'm from um but then obviously that that has a limited use if the dragons do that really well then you won't really need them anymore so <laughs> right uh, but then in this world that i created which i want to admit i wrote before our most recent pandemic there was a canine epidemic and it wiped out almost all the dogs it's not personal between me and dog i have <laughs> too yeah it's just that you know when we were developing the book um my agent and i were talking about it and he said well tell me exactly why there would be dragons in this world and they would be trying to create different kinds and i said well i don't understand the, the premise of your question like why would if you could make dragons why wouldn't you make them all right the time? why wouldn't you do it? i yeah. love dragons. and yeah. he said i understand that but um especially for the purpose of this book why domesticate them there probably needs to be a pretty compelling reason for that to be happening. And even though I had a visceral, you know, disagreement to the notion <laughs> that you could create dragons, I yeah. thought, well, um, I guess the most obvious reason would be if we didn't have dogs for some reason. So um, that that was this the story impetus that brought this in that made created a market need for developing different types of dragons and made some of the economics of the book work because they're um, obviously expensive and this is a biotech startup biotech startups need to have a way to make money so uh it just fit it's nothing against dogs i love dogs um one of the uh ingenious kind of uh a side it's not even a side plot it's just kind of almost like an interlude is the uh customer service calls <laughs> oh yeah uh, that you get and um I, I think I'm mixing two up, but there was one that was talking about a missing dragon and um, the guy, the operator like quickly realizes what's going on and he's having these red flags of um, yeah, that's probably bad. Um, and it's the entire interaction. And then there's a, the, the kid uh, who calls in about the, the dragon, but he, he kind of like, plays it off like it's not a big deal and they the the operator's like no 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 this, this is pretty significant and, and it's it's those interactions i thought were hilarious just kind of thrown in because you're you're right there it is a company that's trying to make money so it is doing more things than just doing the military aspect that that this book is uh revolving around and that was really interesting seeing that side as kind of like a <laughs> that's cool type 
I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because um, those types of interludes, they were in the first book too. And I had so much fun with those. Like the, it's like a different form. It's just like between chapters, there's just essentially a transcript of a support interaction between somebody working at the Build-A-Dragon company and a customer having a dragon-related problem. <laughs> and they're almost always meant to be funny and snarky and like the the person the customer service representative it's always the same guy and he has like a very dry yeah like sense of humor and like a little bit of snark like every now and then you meet people like this in a customer service and you're just like i'm wondering like is that person being a smartest or not and you're never quite sure and right. so they were in the first book too and I, i'm so glad that i it was an experiment for me as a writer to try out and i was thrilled that i got to keep them in the first one and then the in the second book i was delighted my editor let me keep them too i wrote some of them for the, that one those are the ones you some of the ones you alluded to and they're just like they don't really they're not necessary for the plot of the book per se it's just like little glimpses of the world where people are buying dragons and keeping them in the home and like the problems they come up with and how the company's trying to deal with those and i was i was actually worried out well i'm going to get to keep those in the second book and my editor even said you know these these interludes they really do. They don't really do much to bring the story forward, but you can keep them just because they're hilarious. So I was right. like, Great, fine with me. Well, I think you know, no, they don't directly affect the story, and they don't, they don't build it really, but they do build the world that they're that you're trying to inhabit and and pull the reader into, and it's a very fun kind of experience to have that the rest of the world is just going about their daily lives with dragons like it they're no big deal and that's that's very interesting as a as a glimpse to see what would the world be like with dragons and no we don't get like really big in-depth scenes with that but the glimpses i think are enough as far as this book uh goes it's funny you said that because when there was an early draft of the first book that started a different place and it was just like the main character comes out of his front door and there's like a dragon that's so neighbor's pet is like peeing on his rose bushes <laughs> and like that was the very first scene in the in the book and i think somehow that got lost i don't know during it ended up starting quite that way but it was just like boom right there in the like it's a world with dragons in it and they're already so commonplace that like he's not even wowed by the fact that it's a dragon he's more irritated at what it's doing right and, yeah I, I i mean i wish i'd been able to keep it but it's i love imagining a world where dragons are everywhere and they're just part of our everyday lives yeah and, and it's interesting reading a book that like you said is set kind of in the near future that has dragons in it most i mean fantasy most dragons are set in a fantasy world which is typically in the past and there's right. not like you know all the modern conveniences that we have and it's a very interesting you know juxtaposition of the fantastical fantasy creature of knights and castles and all that stuff and you know they're peeing on your rose bushes or you're taking them out for a walk or eating your cat like that i think that was really cool um, one of the so I want to talk about the main plot, which is the the development of the military aspect of uh, the dragons. I, I was in the Air Force for six years um, and then uh, did law enforcement for uh, 13. And the the process of acquiring or doing like a, a memo for memorandum for proposals and, and getting contracts and stuff like that is always really funny when you go to um uh places like you know chevy or ford for instance for police cars and they're trying to give you the best package or like in the military where they're trying to develop like six hour just got a new uh contract for the new uh rifle in the military they're replacing the the m4 um those type of things are always really interesting to follow um because of how hard those companies work and how many millions and millions of dollars they just drop into something that might not happen and you know with military contracts even you mentioned in the book too where you're talking about potentially billions of dollars worth of research um and development going into something that may or may not happen um 
and obviously with the build uh build a dragon with with the company aspect of it the the engineering aspect of it that was i think that was a really significant a really interesting way to go um to follow that process instead of just having hey they want it and then they go and do a mission or something like that right we follow through the whole process of of development and and even the you know the marine aspect and air force aspect so in terms of research and and um putting all those aspects together in kind of a a clear pathway to success what did you do for that to develop that into an intraday the plot that it is well um i'm glad you asked about that and i was i'm still nervous to hear what you actually thought of whether or not i pulled it off but the uh ironic somewhat ironically i did almost more research for this book than the first one because the first one leaned really hard into genetics and biotech i'm like that's my everyday job and then right. this the second book the one that you read deploying dragons obviously it, it leans a lot in the military stuff and specifically the acquisition core and how they operate and how they evaluate uh potential new equipment and contract and stuff so i had to do a ton of of research because i don't have a ton of experience with that um i'm fortunate because i i know people who do so i could ask a lot of questions and they critique for me and they're like no this is completely wrong so i like i've hopefully avoided the most grievous errors but i did a lot of research into how historically how different weapon systems and other contracted things have come into existence and how those how the companies vie for them and, and go for these contracts and are awarded contracts and whether or not they deliver on the promises that contract it was very fascinating to me so i was studying like missile systems and drone systems and and things of that nature. I did a I did a lot of reading, mostly focused on the U.S. military and how they acquire things. The um, it 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 shows through, and I I think you did a fantastic job, um, especially especially when you when you talk about the specifics and even some kind of the weird specifics, right? Like we needed to go forty six knots, and we needed to hold this much wait and you're like but why but the military has these things that they're like they have the ideas in the back of their mind and they're like they know what they want to do with this stuff and they don't want to tell you what they're going to do with this stuff but they're going to tell you what they want it and need it to do and um if you don't meet those specifications then you're no good for their their process and so i think the the specificity of going into we need the dragon to carry this amount of weight or fly this fast or and and then going into what your your realm is and and then figuring out how do we engineer it to do those things and it didn't ever come to a point where which i was glad it didn't where you just built like the the ultra dragon and it could do all of it like you had to take into account okay if it's going to be fast it can't do this if it's going to be if it's going to carry a whole bunch of weight it can't also do this and there was there's a very give and take on the limitations of what a specific model of dragon or or a design can do um and i thought that was very good that you were intentional about making those limitations known and then having to work around them that's good. I'm glad you said that because, first of all, I'm relieved I didn't completely fumble it. But also for me, um, you know, the, the part of the book that I really wanted to write is the engineering challenge. Right. So the the main character, he's a genetic engineer and he had, he's the one that, along with his team, has to figure out how to make a, a dragon do X. And in the first book, it was like, well, how do we get a dragon to not attack its owners and then to to fill these different roles that dogs used to serve in society and then in the second book it's how do we get a dragon to do these specific things that the military says they need we don't necessarily know why but obviously um the dod sets their bar pretty high right i mean they don't set easy softball requirements right for their things that they acquire like they set pretty ambitious um requirements and so you know the main character and his team like they want to go for it and but it's not easy i mean designing living creatures to meet the requirements of a military organization was the like space I wanted to get into. So I, once I at least did the background research on like, how would they 
approach the DOD or vice versa? And how would that begin? Then like, what would they want? Then I get to more, lean more into my wheelhouse of, okay, this is how they tried to solve the problems of it and how they failed, you know, in various ways to make the, dra the dragon that would meet the, these requirements. So uh, that for me is like, that's more in my strength. So it was getting there that I had to do. And, and it was, it was very interesting. for me. So the, I can't remember what the, the term was that you used. I think it was, it had something to do with the shoulder or uh, some kind of a wing joint when they're talking about oh, yeah. how fast they're going. What, where did that come from? That is, that is different kind of research. It's a, re it's research on real evolutionary biology of like the fastest flying creatures, especially birds. Um, and, there's like a misconception that the peregrine falcon is the fastest bird. It's the fastest bird diving, but horizontal flight, it's like birds in the swift family. And because they have these, they've evolved these specialized wings and the joints used for like very efficient, fast horizontal flight. So that like, there is real biology based in that. And it's actually one of the few few great examples of convergent evolution. So there is like a perfect wing for speed and multiple different species of birds have gotten to that point. Um, and it's not just the wing. It's the, it's like I said, the joint and the musculature and all those things coming together. So since we're designing real flying creatures for some of these challenges, I was like, it would make sense to do that. And of course, wing design is just something I'm personally interested in. And so are lots of people. So it was great yeah. to bring some of that nature into the book. Uh, the only thing I think I was disappointed in is uh, not seeing like really like a fire breathing dragon just go like nuts on on uh, on somebody. Um, but it, it also makes sense in the context of I mean, you don't really want to have if it gets loose and then your fire breathing dragon is raining destruction down on the town, then that's probably a bad thing. It's uh, I mean. F fair point, touche. I, I also <laughs> love to see fire-breathing dragons. I think for that one, first of all, to some to some extent, it's a little cliche. Like that's a true that's a dragon is like breathing fire. And then, like me as a scientist, like practically, I'm like, I I don't really see a good way for a dragon to be reliably producing fire without like burning itself up. So <laughs> right. that was partly just me not having enough engineering chops to solve the problem. And so I focused on things I could reasonably see dragons being adapted to do first. But, you know, there's always room to go there, right? And it's, it's, it's sort of the prototypical dragon that we're all waiting to see. And how are we going to get there? I, have, I haven't fully decided yet. But it's, it's funny because the first book, it was uh, domesticating dragons. It was like trying to develop them to do these other things like the dogs do. It's a totally different set of challenges. But uh, they were always operating under these design restrictions that the leader of the company had put in place, which is like, hey, for every benefit you give the dragon, you know, you have to take something away from the other thing because we're not just going to make these super amazing apex predator reptiles and bring them into the world. That would be kind of irresponsible. So they would operate on this point system. It's like, well, if you're going to make the claws longer, you got to make the muscles a little less bulky or whatever, like, advantages and disadvantages had to be balanced a little bit so we didn't like inadvertently create our own predator. So this right. is like a different thing. <laughs> well, and the, uh, the competition, uh, I mean, I, I love that whole, um, the, 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 uh, uh, graves, is it graves or greaves? No, I'm greaves. greaves. Um, uh, going and, I, and I'm, uh, through context, I gather he's a <clears throat> part of the first book and, and, uh, that he's also the antagonist or one of the antagonists from the first book. Um, and it's interesting to see him carry through. But again, I, I wasn't lost on that um, on that aspect of the book either. I, I thought that it was very, a uh, very natural opening to say, oh, yeah, this guy did this, this and this. And it it didn't feel expositiony or Mary Suey. It it was very That's if you good. get my meaning, it was very natural in the way that you led into that uh that rivalry and watching, you know, uh, Greaves do one thing better than uh, Noah just going, watching that was very interesting. And then seeing the progression of the trials as the book goes on was very interesting watching that how the different dragons operated in 
and competed. Right. I mean, I love a good bad guy. What can I say? Right. <laughs> right. Sort of, um, just for context, he he was the former CEO of the company when our main character Noah first went there. And so for various reasons, I won't get into too much. Like he was a form of adversary in the first book, too, because in addition to the point system, I just explained like he he was the guy in charge and he he basically called the shots and they weren't always exactly what Noah wanted. And so that was like a source of the struggle in the first oh, book. Gotcha. Right. In the second book, I don't think it's a spoiler. Say like he emerges as a rival to get this contract. And so um, it's. I agree. I mean, I think he's a fascinating character. I, I actually hadn't even really come up with the idea. I think my my publisher gets credit for the idea. They were like, hey, what about this bad guy? Like, let's bring him back. And I was like, oh, yes, we we totally have to do that. And so it made sense. And, you know, everybody loves competition, right? Competition produces innovation. And and so it's it's it creates complexities for our main character, of course, but uh I, I'm glad that worked that that worked out really well and you didn't feel lost. I've got a, an interesting side uh, story to tell uh, that goes into my next question. So uh, I was on the police department for a really long time and uh, I worked on a, a unit called community policing and we handled complaints that weren't necessarily 911 calls. And uh, this particular day we were pretty busy and a lot of calls were holding and I get a suspicious character call. It comes out kind of in the middle of nowhere. And it's down uh, down around some industrial buildings. And uh, the call is basically, we think there's a drug deal going on down here because people keep parking and then walking around for a while. And then they go to this spot and then oh, they go back I, to their I, car. I it is too. Yeah. And then they leave. And... <laughs> Uh, so I get down there and I don't see anybody there and I'm just walking around and in the Texas, they go to this tree and they look at this tree and I walk over and I'm looking around and I see absolutely nothing. There is nothing there. And finally, just by chance, I look up and I see this little film, the plastic uh, film canister that you, you would have like on a, on a, on a 35 millimeter roll for a camera. And it's just, sitting in this little cleft of the tree and I pick it up and open it and there's a piece of paper and people have written their name on it. And that was my first introduction yeah, to geocaching. And so when you had it in this book, I was like, I actually know what it is. I've never done it, but I actually know what it is. And it was interesting uh, to, to say, I mean, I guess it's a huge subculture. Um, <laughs> I, I uh, When I say huge, relatively speaking, but um uh, very interesting to incorporate that as part of your story. And then um, uh, what, what was the in impetus for that? Like, uh, Oh, Oh, that, that's a great story. I, I thought I knew where you were going with this, but I was also wondering, could have also been Pokemon go, but uh, Oh, true. No, true. It's true. Geocaching. Um, it is, it's a subculture. And I mean that in, in the positive sense that there's a whole community of people that are into it. And yeah, just a fun hobby and I've done it. My family did it when I was growing up. And so just the idea is you take a GPS and you go on one of these hunts to find this thing is hidden at these certain coordinates. And they're all over as you found, like in this random industrial complex, there are, there are all these different geocaches. So, um, you know, it, it's, it's something that, uh, something that's always, almost always been part of the book. Cause you know, it takes, the book takes place in the American Southwest, like in Phoenix, Arizona. And so yeah. that's a pretty popular hobby there because there's so much public land to go adventuring on. And and so it's always been something that the main character Noah does, like as a hobby, first by himself. And then, of course, as he like gets a pet dragon, he takes the dragon with him so they can go out in the desert together and have something to do. And so right. I have so much fun running that. And and interestingly, I I also have my own geocache that I set up. We set up like a year. I'm surprised it took this long, but we set up about a year and four months ago. And we just went for like our anniversary visit to check on the cache, which was very fun. Um, it's hidden in this wooden area, in a wooded area in a state park. And it's astonishing how popular it is. Like in the past year, there were more than 70 people that had found that thing. Oh, so wow. it's, I mean, it's, and a lot of them were there like January in Ohio, which is no small feat, right? So it 
it is a very interesting subculture. And if you look and search, like geocaches are all over the place. They're in they're in cities, downtowns. They're in they're of course a ton on in parks and those types of places. But like you're almost always within a few miles of one, and so it is this fun little element to this uh, to the books that that's something a main character likes to do, and it ends up being useful in some some other ways. I won't spoil now. Yeah, right, one hundred percent. No, and I uh, look, I I read a, a crap ton of books, and uh, that's a scientific measurement if you haven't heard one, and I. <laughs> Um, usually only read science fiction and fantasy. I read a lot of um, like mystery thriller as well, but um, most of the books I read are, are, are pretty heavy and it was really enjoyable and kind of a relief almost to read this book because the tension is there. The, the characters really drive the story forward. Um, you know, doing the different things that aren't really necessary uh, necessarily directly related to the uh, trials, but just following them around and seeing what their life is like. Um, it was a really kind of a, almost a breath of fresh air reading it as it wasn't, it's, it's not a super heavy, like there's no con like combat or laser blasters or people getting their heads cut off or anything. It was just a really enjoyable, relaxing read. Um, that was an intelligently written with fun characters. And I really, really enjoyed that. Um, switch. I'm really glad I try not to take myself too seriously with my books. Right. So I I'm, I'm glad you said that. And, you know, I'm mainly looking to entertain and, and there's a like little bit of humor and light stuff in almost everything I write. And so I'm glad you responded that way. And so, I read a lot of sci-fi and fantasy too, and some of it is like, some of it is a wait to get through, like, because it's very grim or tense and like very keyed up. So, right. I just, I mean, with my stuff, either because I'm incapable of doing that, or I just prefer to do something else. I most of my stuff is meant to be light and fun. So I'm glad you had that reaction to it. It's kind of you to say. Yeah, no, it was great. Um, so, is there going to be a third? One, are you working on the third book? Uh, uh, what, what's what's in store for the uh, the Build a Dragon Agency? That's a you know that's a very good question. Um, I will say you know when I wrote the the thing that has evolved for me over the course of this book and the project is when I wrote the book that became Domesticating Dragons. You know, at that time, I we didn't have a publisher or anything. I mean, I wrote the book on spec. It was because it was my Thing to do and and so it was so exciting when bane wanted that book right i mean it's like legendary hard sci-fi publisher and i felt like the book was pretty hard sci-fi and so yeah it's been really interesting for me like i had actually written nonfiction about genetics for bane before we some time before we sent them the book that's how i got to know my editor who we sent the book so it was very interesting to see that happen i was super enthusiastic right and then um something that happened that i've shared the story once or twice before but not that often it was it was like when we first having we're having these conversations about the first book um uh, tony said hey look you know we really like the book but we just got to tell you there's something you have to change about it if we're going to buy the book i was like oh okay like and you just never know like what is it going to be and they said you have this guy in it who's like a security chief, uh, ex-military. And he was like the bad guy One in the initial version. They were like, um, here's the deal. Like most of our readers, like a lot of our readers, they're ex-military and or law enforcement. <laughs> like, right. They're like, they're going to see this guy and assume that's the hero of the book. Yeah. So you probably shouldn't have him be the bad guy. I was like, oh, wow. I, you know, it never occurred to me, but absolutely it makes a ton of sense. And so, we changed that part of the book, obviously. And I said, I have no problem fixing that. So um, then, you know, with this new book, now it's the difference for me in writing it is I do, I did know who was going to publish it and the audience that was likely going to hear about it, which is the Bain readership audience. So this, this was me trying to um, write something I thought Bain readers would enjoy because there's the military aspect of it. I still get to do my, my hard science and genetics, but um 
there's a lot of the cool stuff about the development of what's essentially a new weapon system, which I very much enjoy. My favorite part for me, I mean, the part that I love about this is just a guy who's a scientist and civilian, kind of like me, interacting with people from the military, like officers and stuff from the military, and just like being a little bit of a bumbling guy that will sometimes ask questions that people with military background know like you don't ask those sorts of questions because we're not going to tell you the answer so i love that part of it like and i've people who read it and kind of kept me honest they were like yeah like this guy they're not going to tell him this or something like that and i i totally envisioned myself as being the person that was bumbling into those interactions so that was the part i really enjoyed and and um, well and i could say that the 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 few times where the you know the officers uh the, the colonels are they look at him like, did you really just, did you ask that question? Really? It's totally me. And, and the, the exclusion or, you know, that the, we'll be back to you in a couple of weeks. Like, I'm like, yeah, okay. That makes sense. But he's like a couple of weeks. Like, like, tell me now. And I'm like, no, no, <laughs> they might know now, but they're definitely not going to tell you now. Um, those, those interactions I thought were spot on. Right now. And it's true. Like we, I understand intellectually that, there you can't have full disclosure of a lot of stuff because that's the nature of the game in, in the military and so me as a scientist coming from it from almost like totally opposite side of the field where we share everything with anybody who will listen about our day jobs Indeed. there's very little that's confidential i mean right. outside of patient information but i mean i also have enough exposure to the world like there is a lot of confidentiality and like you there are things you don't get to talk about things that you can't talk about and the way that you bring them up is is very specific. So I enjoyed learning about that and writing that about that. And obviously I'm putting myself in as the bumbler who's going <laughs> doing his best, but sometimes making faux pas. Well, I, I thought you did a fine job. Um, I thought it was a really entertaining book. Um, and um, honestly, I, I'm, I'm going to have to pick up the, the first one and read it. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. No, I'll set you up. That's domesticating dragons and then the yeah. deploying dragons. So um, I'm glad we got to come and talk about it. I was glad you hadn't read the first one because it's good for me to gauge like how well did we ground readers who didn't see the first book in the necessary backstory because it's a different and type that's of really story. really tough too. Uh, like, you know, for, for I think any, any property or IP when you're talking about doing series, it's really tough to weigh, you know, what like it's, especially in, in a book like this where the, the plot from the first book is is tangentially connected to yeah. this plot but fundamentally they're different and so yeah. it's not a an overarching you know thing that is going on but they're definitely connected and and those books i think are are like you get into some books that are like 12 books long and you have to read book one to understand book 12 and you're like I, i'm not even gonna try i, I don't i don't want to try I'll <laughs> that's just, what i um, want to do avoid so yeah uh, let's see. This book is out right now. As far yeah. yes, it came out on the sixth. That's right, two um, weeks ago. And it's available in uh, paperback and in Kindle uh, on Amazon right now. Um, I highly recommend it if you're listening to the show and you're looking for a, a really enjoyable book, and you might learn something. I learned something about cones and rods in the eye uh, reading this book that I never would have thought I'd. Uh, learn about um so dan fantastic job with the the book man and and all the success to you and thank you so much for for coming on the show um well, thank you so much for your kind words i appreciate it where can our listeners uh, find out more about you and uh, the build a bear or build a build a bear, bear to build a dragon sequence at <laughs> um if you look me up i'm at dancobalt.com i'm also on twitter at dancobalt uh I love meeting people who are interested in this stuff. So please track me down and find me. I'm happy to talk about it as much as anybody would like me to. And then some, so I'm easy to find. Awesome. Well, thank you again, sir, for coming on the show and uh, have a great day. And now we bring you Timothy Zahn's Cobra. Earth's only hope was the Cobras. The colony world's Adirondack and Silvern fell to the troughed forces almost without a struggle. Outnumbered and on the defensive, Earth made a desperate decision. 
It would attack the aliens, not from space, but on the ground with forces the troughs did not even suspect. Thus were created the Cobras, a guerrilla force whose weapons were surgically implanted, invisible to the unsuspecting eye, yet undeniably deadly. But power brings temptation, and not all the Cobras could be trusted to fight for Earth alone. Johnny Moreau would learn the uses and abuses of his special abilities and what it truly meant to be a Cobra. It was an hour past noon in the outside world, and Johnny was once more reviewing everything he'd ever been taught about prison escapes, when an abrupt creak of metal from the door sent him rolling off the table. Crouching at the edge of the slab, fingertip lasers aimed, he watched tensely as the door opened a meter and someone leaped into his cell. He had a targeting lock established and lasers tracking before his conscious mind caught up with two important details. The figure was human, and it had not been traveling under its own power. Looking back at the door, he got just a glimpse of two body-armored troughs as they slammed the heavy steel plate closed again. The thud reverberated like overhead thunder in the tiny room, and the possible shot at escaping his cell was gone. Slowly, Johnny got to his feet and stepped around the table to meet his new cellmate. She was on her feet when he reached her, bent over slightly as she rubbed an obviously painful kneecap. Damn chicken-faced strip pitchers, she grumbled. They could have just let me walk in. You all right? Johnny asked, giving her a quick once-over. A bit shorter than he was, and as slender, maybe seven or eight years older, dressed in the mishmash of styles the war had made common. No obvious injuries or bloodstains that he could see. Oh, sure. Straightening up, she sent a quick look around the cell. Though I suppose that could change at any time. What's going on here, anyway? Tell me what happened. I wish I knew. I was just walking down Strassheim Street, minding my own business, when this troughed patrol turned a corner. They asked me what I was doing there. I essentially told them to go back to hell. And for no particular reason, they grabbed me and hauled me in here. Johnny's lip twitched in a smile. In the early days of the occupation, he'd heard, it had been possible to fire off multiple obscenities at point-blank range, and as long as you kept your face and voice respectful, the troughs had no way of catching on. With the aliens' advances in Anglic translation, though, only the truly imaginative could come up with something they hadn't heard before. Strassheim Street. There was a Strassheim in Cranach, he remembered, down in the south end of the city where a lot of the light industry had been. So what were you doing there? he asked the woman. I thought that area was mostly deserted now. She gave him a cool, measuring look. Shall I repeat the answer I gave the troughs? He shrugged. Don't bother. I was just asking. Turning his back on her, he hopped back on the table, seating himself cross-legged facing the door. It really wasn't any of his business. Besides which, he was starting to get an uncomfortable feeling as to the reason for her presence here. And if he was right, the less contact he had with her, the better. There was no point in getting to know someone you would probably soon be dying with. For a moment, it seemed like she'd come to a similar conclusion. Then, with hesitant footsteps, she came around the edge of the table and into his peripheral vision. "'Hey, I'm sorry,' she said, the snap still audible in her voice, but subdued to a more civil level. "'I'm just—I'm starting to get a little scared, that's all. And I tend to bite heads off when I get scared. I was on Strassheim because I was hoping to get into one of the old factories and scrounge some circuit boards or other electronics parts, okay?' He pursed his lips and looked at her, feeling his freshly minted resolve tarnishing already. Those buildings have been picked pretty clean in the past three years, he pointed out. Mostly by people who don't know what they're doing, she shrugged. There's still some stuff left if you know where and how to find it. Are you part of the underground? Johnny asked, and instantly wished he could call back the thoughtless words. With monitors all around, her answer could lose her what little chance of freedom she had left. But she merely snorted. Are you nuts? I'm a struggling burglar, confrere, not a volunteer lunatic. Her eyes widened suddenly. Say, you're not... Um, hey, wait a minute. They don't think that I... Oh, great, great. What did you do? Come calling for old Tyler with a laser in one hand and a grenade in the other? Old Tyler? Johnny asked, latching onto the most coherent part of that oral skid. Who or what is that? We're in his mansion, she frowned. At least I think so. Didn't you know? I was unconscious when I was brought in. 
What do you mean you think so? Well, I was actually taken into an old apartment building a block away, and then along an underground tunnel to get here. But I got a glimpse through an unblocked window as I was being brought through the main building, and I think I saw the Tyler Mansion's outer wall. Anyway, even without fancy furniture and all, you can tell the rooms up here were designed for someone rich. The Tyler Mansion. The name was familiar from Amanunki's local history-geography seminars. A large house with a sort of pseudo-Reginine millionaire style, he recalled, built south of the city in the days before industry moved into that area. She'd been vague as to the semi-recluse owner's whereabouts since the Troft invasion, but it was generally believed he was holed up inside somewhere, counting on private stores and the mansion's defenses to keep out looters and aliens alike. Johnny remembered thinking at the time that the Trofts were being uncommonly generous to leave the place standing under those conditions, and wondering if perhaps a private deal had been struck. It was starting to look like he'd been right, though the deal was possibly more than a little one-sided. But more interesting than the mansion's recent history were the possibilities inherent in being locked inside such a residence. Unlike a factory, a millionaire's home ought to have an emergency escape route. If he could find it, perhaps he could bypass whatever death trap the troughts had planned for him. You say you came in through a tunnel, he said to his cellmate. Did it look new or hastily built? Say, as if the troughts had dug it in the past three years? But she was frowning again, a hard look in her eyes. Who the hell are you, anyway, that you never heard of old Tyler? He's been written up more than every other celebrity on Adirondack. Even volunteer lunatics can't be that ignorant, at least not those who grew up in Cranach. Johnny sighed. But she did have a right to know on whom her life was probably going to depend, and it certainly wouldn't be giving away any secrets to the troughs eavesdropping on them. You're right. I grew up quite a ways from here. I'm a cobra. Her eyes widened, then narrowed again as they swept his frame. A cobra, huh? You sure don't look like anything special. We're not supposed to, Johnny told her patiently. Undercover guerrilla fighters, remember? Oh, I know. But I've seen men masquerade as cobras before to impress or threaten people. You want some proof? He'd been looking for an excuse to do this anyway. Hopping off the table, he stepped closer to the rear wall and extended his right arm. A group of suspected sensor positions faced him just below eye level. Targeting it, he turned his head to look at the woman. Watch, he said, and triggered his arc thrower. A discerning eye might have noticed that there were actually two components to the flash that lit up the room an instant later. The fingertip laser beam, which burned an ionized path through the air, and the high amperage spark that traveled that path to the wall. But the accompanying thunderclap was the really impressive part. And in the metal-walled cell, it was impressive as hell. The woman jumped a meter backwards from a standing start, mouthing something Johnny couldn't hear through the multiple reverberations. Satisfied, he asked her when the sound finally faded away. Staring at him with wide eyes, she bobbed her head quickly. Oh, yes. Yes, indeed. What in heaven's name was that? Arc thrower. Designed to fry electronic gear. Works pretty well, usually. In fact, it worked quite well and Johnny didn't expect to have to worry about that particular sensor cluster again. I don't doubt it. She exhaled once, and with that action seemed to get her mind working as well. A real cobra. So how come you haven't broken out of here yet? For a long moment he stared at her, wondering what to say. If the Trofts knew he was onto their scheme, but surely her presence here proved they'd already figured that out. Tell her the truth, then? that the aliens were forcing him to choose between betraying his fellow cobras and saving her life? He chose the easier, if temporary, solution of changing the subject. You were going to tell me about the tunnel, he reminded her. Oh, right. No, it looked like it had been there a lot longer than three years. There also looked to be spots where gates and defensive equipment had been taken out. In other words, it looked like Tyler's hoped-for escape hatch, and already in alien hands. How well were the troughs guarding it? The place was full of them. She was giving him a wary look. You're not planning to try and leave that way, are you? What if I am? It'd be suicide. And since I plan to be right behind you, it'd leave me in a bad spot too. He frowned at her. Only then realizing that she'd apparently figured out more about what was going on than he'd given her credit for. In her own less than subtle way, she was saying he need not burden himself physically with her when he chose to escape. 
that he shouldn't feel responsible for her safety. If only it were that simple, he thought bitterly. Would she understand as well if he stayed passively in the cell and thereby sentenced her automatically to death? Or was that option even open to him anymore? Already, despite his earlier resolve, he realized he could no longer see her as simply a faceless statistic in this war. He'd talked to her, watched her eyes change expression, even gotten a little bit inside her mind. Whatever it cost him, life and data too, he knew now that he would eventually have to make the effort to get her out. The Troth's gambit had worked. You'll be proud of me, Jamie, if you ever find out, he thought toward the distant stars. My horizon ethics have survived exposure to even war with all their stupid nobility intact. On the other hand, he was now locked up with a professional burglar inside what had to be the most enticing potential target for him. In their eagerness to hang an emotional millstone around his neck, it was just barely possible the Trofts had outsmarted themselves. My name's Johnny Moreau, he told the woman. What's yours? Ilona Linder. He nodded, knowing full well that with an exchange of names he was now committed. Well, Ilona, if you think the tunnel's a poor choice of exits, let's see what else we can come up with. Why don't you start by telling me everything you know about the Tyler Mansion? That was another installment in Timothy Zahn's Cobra, and that's it for the podcast. Thanks as always to Audible.com and podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. Praise, thanks, and gratitude to Dan Cobalt for sitting down with us today. And good night, Tony Daniel, wherever you are. This is David Afshirod coming to you from a soundproof bunker somewhere deep in the heart of Texas. Join us here next week at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy and keep reaching for the stars.